0: Tisha and this is Series 3 of the New Leaf Podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. New Leaf interviews working women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to them after having babies, exploring the often huge professional and personal identity shifts that happen when we create the next generation. Our jobs are a really big part of who we are and we don't stop being who we always were just because we've had a baby there is such big pressure to be the perfect mummy when actually she doesn't exist and return to the perfect career when actually that doesn't really exist either. We are all muddling through and figuring it out. By sharing these amazing women's stories, I want to prove to you that motherhood is truly a rebirth in ways we never expect. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Newleaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we get going, though, I've got something special and free lined up for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to Newleaf Nutshell, my exclusive fortnightly summary write up of these episodes with judgment free motherhood tips and tricks, general musings, and interesting articles about all things women straight to your phone doing all the googling so you don't have to. Okay, let's go. Anna Kent, midwife, humanitarian and single mum of five-year-old Ayesha, joins me today on the series three finale of the New Leaf podcast. I found out about Anna after my mum pointed me in the direction of a BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour broadcast featuring Anna and her book, which is out now, Frontline Midwife. I knew pretty soon from the sheer length of text my mum sent about her that she was not one to miss, and after I listened, I realised that to have her as my final guest was non-negotiable. I'm always quite careful about who I decide to close the series, and I was really stuck as who to choose this time. Anna, however, did not disappoint. Anna spent her late 20s in war zones, nursing, midwifing, and in her words, witnessing. Witnessing the amazing successes they had with the often sparse and scant resources available, but also witnessing the horrors of war. Anna delivered babies by Head Torch, project managed maternal health units for thousands of people, and faced life and death stories on a daily basis with Médecins Sans Frontières or Doctors Without Borders. I was absolutely riveted, and I know that you will be too. Since she was a little girl, Anna felt a deep sense of injustice at the hunger, violence and intense health inequalities faced all over the world. The moment she got a chance to do something about it, she did. And it was this decision that set in motion her professional and very personal journey to where she is now. From our conversation, it was clear to me that Anna is an incredibly conscientious person. For someone who has been through so much in our conversation, she was at pains to put the journeys of the women she encountered first and foremost and tell their stories with a deep sense of respect and dignity. Anna was unafraid to address head-on the challenges of white privilege, white saviour complexes and contradiction in an ever-changing world of international aid, which she did with humility and grace. There was such a lot that stood out to me about this chat, so much that I feel like I could almost do an entire episode in itself just discussing this one. Something that I know is a sign of a really, really good guest. We addressed miscarriage, termination for medical reasons, unsafe abortion consequences, rape, single parenting, divorce, maternity scandals, the NHS and politics. Despite the obvious seriousness of these topics, we also managed to laugh a lot. But there is something Anna mentioned that I know will resonate with so many of you, and that is the concept of dignity in birth. From the 30 or so other women I've interviewed for over an hour each as part of this podcast, sometimes two hours, it is amazing the impact that dignity, or lack thereof, can have on our birth experiences and mental health following birth feeling unheard, feeling like a piece of meat, feeling talked over and feeling ignored. The list is endless when it comes to the experiences I've heard over the last couple of years and the impact it has on us as women is undeniable. Anna is clearly passionate on the importance of dignity in birth. Whether it was in a mud hut with 52 degrees Celsius heat in South Sudan or In a UK hospital with teenage mums and HIV positive mums, no matter the environment, context or journey, for her, dignity is paramount. And I thought this was real testament to the emotional intelligence and deep passion she has for truly positive birth experiences, no matter what they look like. I would love to hear experiences with dignity in your own birth experience, by the way. So please do drop me a message on Instagram or an email if this resonates with you. There's so much more to say on this episode, but there's simply not the time as you can see by the length. You'll have to listen for yourself. Anna was one of the most fascinating guests I've ever had on. I felt incredibly lucky to share this conversation with her and we ended the chat like friends despite never having met. I'm already desperate to listen to the whole thing again. Introducing Anna Kent and thank you listeners for staying with me for series three. gives me great pleasure to welcome Anna Kent. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You are so welcome. I was just saying to Anna before we got going with our recording how much I was looking forward to this interview. So I can't wait is all I can say. Mm. (laughs) How is your day going so far? Oh, it's good. I
1: got my little one to school on time, so that's always a good win. She's five now. did a couple of errands in the office and managed to make a cup of tea. So yeah, I think I'm winning today.
0: Definitely winning. So um, I'll just describe how we know each other. So my mum and myself, frankly, are avid Women's Hour listeners. And my mum was listening and was like, Letty, you have got to have this woman on i was like who and um she sent me the link so i listened to it later and then thought oh my god i really do so firstly how was that experience because it is pretty much my dream to be (laughs) on women's hour Oh, it was wonderful.
1: So I live in Dorset now and I'm a single mum to my five-year-old. So I don't really get chances to do fun things by myself, but my parents came down to Dorset and looked after Little Women for a couple of days. I've written a book called Frontline Midwife and because of that, we've been doing a big book release and we were invited to the BBC. So I went to London and stayed overnight in a hotel in Bloomsbury, which was fabulous. And we got to, well, I'm always early for everything. So we got to the BBC recording studio quite early. And one of those moments you just have to pinch yourself is like, when else in life am I going to get a chance to go into the BBC? So it went in at the right time. Accidentally, <laughs> because I was so early, I went to one of those fruit smoothie shops and just had one that looked healthy, like a green one. I'd got halfway through it and looked at the ingredients and realised it had prunes in. So I was just thinking that, oh, no. that's the worst <laughs> thing you want to be drinking before being plugged up to 10 microphones in a recording studio. So we... Went through security and got in and Emma Barnett offered to make me a cup of tea. So I was just like, oh, somebody pinched me now. So I'm just living in some wonderful dream experience and then went in to record. But do you know, the team was so brilliant. Like you've been today, like really put me at ease. I think all of us can feel nervous, can't we, before doing some sort of recording. But actually the messages we're trying to get out is about helping other women and talking about taboos and raising awareness of important issues. And so I always try to go back to that whenever I'm nervous.
0: Where are you in the world right now and what can you see in front of you? I live in Weymouth in Dorset. I've only been
1: here probably about three or four years or so. Before that, I was in I lived on a canal boat in Nottingham. So I haven't been living on land for all that long. And you'd think coming from the small space of a canal boat, I'd have this lovely serene space. But actually, looking around, I've got about four overflowing toy boxes. I don't know if kids <laughs> just like pink plastic. Even though I don't try and buy it, it just migrates towards us. And I don't even try and do the colour thing with Aisha. Like, I want her to enjoy all colours, but she definitely flocks towards anything special sparkly or pink, regardless of what I'd like <laughs> her to to want.
0: To be honest, that sounds like my son. My <laughs> yeah, well son this is, is it well absolutely into, and, all you know, things pink, glitter and unicorns. Yeah, like and
1: I've pink, pink was traditionally a male colour until the early 1900s because yes. it was red was seen as a powerful colour. So I don't know where the community sent this cultural sense that pink has to be for girls. Absolutely not. I but I feel she like does we should look she it, up. Love I, it yeah. To be fair. And then in front of me on the table, I've got my computer, I've got the cat and hat book, I've got all this year's artwork from Aisha, which is too precious, isn't it, to throw away? But there's such an abundance of it. Like, what do you do with all the drawings? I got divorced last week, which... Congratulations. Uh, is, yes, is, is a positive thing in my life. I've got my decree absolute paperwork in front of me. And uh, a frog hat, because why not? <laughs> that was quite it a long like answer a weird... to your question, wasn't it? Uh,
0: no, <laughs> I love it. This is it's a controversial thing to say, but I think divorce can be a very positive thing. Absolutely. I know that only in America, however, I do know that divorce parties are becoming a thing.
1: Yeah, even consider it because I'd, <laughs> well, I'd married overseas. Did and, you? Well, I never had a hen party because I was pregnant quite quickly when I'd met my ex-husband. It's, it's nice to have a reason to get together with your mates to celebrate, but actually that's not how I feel. I, I went into marriage fully hoping I got my happy ever after. It didn't work out like that, and divorce is absolutely the right thing both for me and my daughter. It, it improves our safety and improves my mental health. So there's loads of positives for it, but at the same time, it's that bittersweetness because it's the symbolic. You no, know, this wasn't the plan. I wanted us to last forever. It was the right thing for it to finish, but but yeah. So some positive and some in the bittersweet sense. Mm,
0: absolutely. So lots to unpick already but <laughs> you mentioned that you were pregnant when you first got married but actually I almost like to go back earlier than that mm-hmm. so I can hear a northern accent where are you from
1: but yeah my accent really varies depending on I don't know what it depends on lots are of you factors with? I think my woman's hour voice was sort of my phone voice I think it was a- <laughs> but now because I feel that we're chatting between friends I don't know I've changed my dialect so I was brought up in Shropshire so for those that don't know the area literally halfway between Birmingham and Manchester beautiful county really lovely I've still got loads of friends back there but I left at 18 to go to Nottingham to do my initial nurse training which was in 1999 I then did overseas work which we'll probably get to with um Medicines on Frontier, MSF, or Dots Without Borders, which included years away at a time. So a lot of my late 20s, I was quite mobile. I've sofa surfed for quite extensive times and then lived on a canal boat in Nottingham and traveled around quite a lot. And then I've been in Dorset. That's the worst Dorset accent in the world. <laughs> I love local accents. Like one of my colleagues goes, have you got any allergies? I'm just like something, really, something like really melts inside. I just, yeah, I feel really a real fondness." So I think, yeah, I think some of my words, I'm I'm unaware of them, but I think some of them pluck between Queen's English and different local accents that I've picked up over the years.
0: I'm from Birmingham, so like oh, okay, that, you know, yeah. it comes out a little bit when I've had a few, but other than that, I'm very aware that I've got a very Queen's English sounding voice, <laughs> which sometimes I have to dial down otherwise I get mega judgment. But doesn't it unconsciously? It does. Voices definitely do. Oh my God, this could be another podcast in itself. <sighs> like, I've just yeah. it's a shameless obsession. Okay. So, firstly, you, you said a few things, but namely, safer serving. Canal boat and also MSF. So it sounds like you've got quite an eclectic bone in you. Would you say that's true?
1: My mum has asked me whether I look for complicated <laughs> ways of living on purpose, and I, I don't absolutely. But also, I do think I try and keep an open mind about what is the right way to live in this particular time. And. Also financially, so with the overseas work, on the whole, it was voluntary. You're voluntary with MSF for the first 12 months in the field, and the field could be a war zone or it could be a refugee camp. And I did three overseas projects with MSF. And then you do get a payment afterwards, but it's not a payment compared to a wage in the UK. But I really, really wanted to do the aid work. It was even from a young child, I was really moved by the next news article of a tsunami or things like live aid in the 80s. So I had always wanted a skill set to be helpful to people that I perceived as being suffering. As a five-year-old, you can't specifically have a life plan, but definitely that very childlike response of, I want to help, I want to be useful, this stuff, like people shouldn't starve to death. I still feel as an adult, there are some things that we all still can't fully be at peace with. So I went into my nurse training at 18, expecting to do some form of humanitarian aid, well, hoping to. And then I was 26 when I went to South Sudan for a year, which was post-conflict. But South Sudan had been 50 years of civil war. That had ruined hospitals, it ruined infrastructure and education. One in eight died in childbirth, which is obviously horrific. More women died in childbirth, which is still a fact today than complete secondary education. So obviously a really complex place for women. Also low social status and really limited access to healthcare. But before I went, I was living with this guy and I thought he was probably going to be my happy ever after. But One of the things about working in a war zone, and we saw wonderful things, brilliant things, like I was involved in a triplet birth vaginally, which was just awesome. It was amazing. Oh, my God. All the triplets survived in this war zone. But the two sides of humanitarian aid is, yes, the vast majority of people that came to us, we absolutely saved their lives. But the other side of it is, one was with this mum who delivered triplets, Grace. There had to come the day where I also waved them back off into the war zone, where they're going to cross landmine fields and be exposed to malaria and schistosomiasis and red cobras and black members, And I couldn't protect women that came to me outside of the hospital. It was always horrendous to discharge anybody. I think I came back really, I mean, stupidly looking back. I think I came back from the conflict zone, like expecting to have this sense of, I don't know, fulfillment, which makes me cringe mm. now. Like I'd done my bit, completely said in inverted commas. And how big's a bit? And not everybody is doing their bit. So there's, you see so much horror, if I'm honest, so much trauma, so much unresolved pain. Not wanting to get like too low, but one of the women that I worked with, she had no access to a midwife in her village. She was pregnant, her baby had died, very sadly. But then the baby's mm. body then didn't deliver and it had eroded a <sighs> hole that went from her uterus into her bladder and bowel. So urine and feces constantly leaked through her vagina. She was septic oh and her gosh. family had deserted her because essentially the smell was so bad. And you know, I c- I still can't get my heart around that level of suffering for her. And one of the mm. th- things about humanitarian aid is sometimes you have to bear witness to the people that you can't save and Temoinage, the French word for the philosophy of bearing witness to humanitarian crises and then speaking out on their behalf, is another reason why we're talking here today—to speak out, Mm. and in the hope that their lives may somehow be improved. But I came back a bit broken. And then this great guy that I'd been living with, I thought I'd get my happy ever after. I still didn't know how to, people would say, oh, how was your gap year? How was your, did you have fun? You know, did you have a brilliant time? And it's like, no, but then not knowing also how to frame it in that I completely acknowledge that the women I'm talking about should absolutely be saying their own story. Absolutely. I am coming from a point of white privilege because I'm educated. I'm from a middle-class family. I got to fly out of the war zone. I 100% acknowledge that they should be saying their own story. But for the women that didn't make it and the women that didn't have education and agency, I do still believe that it is my sense of duty to speak out on their behalf with the complete understanding that it should be them.
0: Absolutely. And it's this gap year. I did a little shudder when you said that because you mentioned Live Aid earlier and a lot of the white saviour stuff that we talk about, these days in the context of recent events and raised awareness and everything that there is still this attitude like you go to a third world country and you paint a shed and then you come back and you're like oh that was fun I helped
1: people can make money exactly. it's it's extremely complicated but One of the reasons I joined MSF is that the vast majority of all donated money does go to beneficiaries. And after working with them, if it hadn't been our hospital because of the war and the political complexity, they wouldn't have had any access to healthcare at all. So MSF works impartially; it's not a government agency. It does get to work where a lot of people aren't able to work because of politics. Mm. But I think what I've learned is that you have to see humanitarian aid as more like an A&E department, which is it's it's an awful example actually. Think about it. But if you bear with me. So say somebody has a heart attack, they have to go into a or a cardiac cath lab and have the emergency input, have the stenting or the drugs or whatever course of action so they survive the heart attack. But then you do need this wider team. You need the GP and you need the rehabilitation. So I kind of feel like the emergency humanitarian aid is helping people survive that moment of crises. But unless you have that tertiary care, One organization like MSF cannot be responsible for all that multitude of things. So it's absolutely essential that MSF is there, absolutely. But Mm. unless the world change and the politics change, then we have to have that feeling of discharging women back to the war zone. Looking back now, of course, I couldn't save everybody in a geographical area the size of Belgium. To do that, you'd need as many hospitals and infrastructure as we have here. From a perspective now, I can forgive myself for the patients I couldn't save. But at the time, I was desperate to atone. And so I came back to the UK. I retrained as a midwife. I got my first degree in midwifery because I've never studied so hard in my life.
0: You said that you retrained, completed your training as a midwife before, but you said that you were in South Sudan doing midwifery-related things. So what? So
1: I went out as an emergency nurse to South Sudan with MSF. That was my job. My job description was a nurse. And in my clinic, in the middle of nowhere, in this war zone, there was literally no other access to healthcare at all. I was working with one other aid worker who was a guy called James, who was in his 60s. And when I first met him, he had a, well, he still does, he had a shaved head, handlebar mustache. He was an ex hells Angel. His mum had been heroin addicted when he was born. He was an alcoholic until his 40s. He then had this near-death experience and knew that he had two choices. He either lived or died. He chose to live, became a Zen Buddhist and retrained as a nurse, had done 20 years in ITU nursing and, and now was atoning for his sins of his past by doing aid work. So James, yeah, he'd stepped out of the dust and he was going to be my only international partner for the next year. And I was really desperately wanted to like him, but but the first time I just thought, oh, you look a bit of a dick, to be honest. <laughs> and we're, we're now best friends and he absolutely knows that I describe him like that. He's now late 70s. He's, he's the brilliant man I've ever known. But yeah, we had, I think I'd been there, I don't know, let's say three nights. And then in the middle of the night, a woman had come to us. Her baby had been born and survived. She was in the nearby village, so she could walk to us. But the placenta hadn't been born, the retained placenta. And at term, the placenta has about eight hundred mils of blood run through it every minute. You know, it's, if you don't birth your placenta, it can be an extremely life-threatening condition. She was bleeding profusely, and we're in darkness. We're in head torches. We had like mosquitoes around us, and moths and crickets were bombarding us. Um, James just turned to me and said, "I don't do women's health," literally that nonchalantly, and went to help the baby. And I basically had a box of equipment that we'd run with, turned my MSF obstetric emergencies book. In my head, I knew it was retained placenta. I'd had quite a lot of training with MSF, but I wasn't a qualified midwife. Turned the page in the book to retain placenta and basically removed the placenta manually whilst looking at the book. Um, that so quite, that was my nuts. yeah piece of fire, which...
0: And oh again, like listening
1: to this from here, why isn't there an obstetrician there? Why isn't there a midwife there? Absolutely should. That woman should not have had an untrained midwife with her. But what, what else were you supposed to do? Just leave had? her to yeah. die? This, what? Well, you didn't it. have a
0: choice. You saved her life. Yeah. And I was, um, and afterwards James yeah. was like, yeah, you saved her
1: life. What a hero. And I, I was like, <laughs> no, absolutely not. There is, there are no heroes in war zones except for birthing women. It was so messy and I was so scared. I had that feeling, you know, when you go over the top of a roller coaster and then you're not sure if you're going to poo yourself. If I'm honest, that's how I felt. That's not heroic. Yes, what we did, safer but in context, it was flawed.
0: We've got the Hollywood portrayal of terrorism, but if you actually think about soldiers in World War Two or the people fighting for their lives in Ukraine now, but I would say that probably everyone is on the cusp of shitting themselves most of the time. That's it, and it's one of the reasons of why I did want to write my book because when I came
1: home, other people were like, "Oh, how was your gap year?" or "Oh my god, you're amazing!" and actually, it's chaotic and it's horrible. Aid work is horrible. It is so essential, but it is also really complicated. And I ended up coping with the complexity of it by, if I'm honest, by partying too hard, by sleeping with people I probably shouldn't, like really trying to find my happiness in the most unhealthy ways. As I said before, I really had to learn to forgive myself for what we couldn't achieve. On those days when we had obstructed labor, but we couldn't get a flight in, I had to sit with women who, who lost their babies under my watch mm. and I don't know if anybody can ever really be at peace with that, I'm not sure.
0: Just knowing a bit more of your story further on, we know <clears throat> a bit about what you did pre-baby but in terms of the origins to where you are now, how old were you when you left South Sudan and what happened next?
1: Yes, yeah, so I was Oh, I lose track. 27, let's say, around then. And <laughs> I left South Sudan. in 2010, went out to Haiti, and then I had one week off, which looking back, maybe it wasn't the most sensible choice. I went back out then to a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh, which are arguably the most persecuted people in the world. The Rohingya people have fled persecution in Myanmar, which is also said Myanmar, which is also said Burma. I tend to say Myanmar because the people I worked with said that and there's different politics with different names. And I turned 30 while I was working there and I was overall in charge of all female and pregnancy health in a refugee camp of 30,000 people. We didn't have a birth unit when I arrived and most births were unsupported in the camps and the camps were hell on earth. It was completely unorganised. People at that time, the stateless, which means you have no political, you don't belong to any country. The stateless Rohingya refugees at that point weren't allowed access to other forms of healthcare. We don't need to get into all the politics of it. Basically, MSF was the only provision of healthcare. And again, we had so many successes, but it's, it's the women that I lost that I I always think of Adab. So she was 16, we think. Oh, and Adab had been raped. In the camp, because there was no police protection. And because of the perceived sin of pregnancy outside of childbirth, it is possible her family could have forced her to marry her rapist to save her from the perceived sin. And without realizing there were other options for her, she had opted to have an unsafe abortion within the camp where essentially a sharpened stick was used. I hadn't met her before until she came to me in the clinic further along the line and she had uncontrolled bleeding and sepsis. And every single thing that I could do for Adab, I did. The camp, even the hostel, was too dangerous for us to be in at night. So I had to leave as the sun set, and I had to leave her. And that night, she died. Mm-hmm. So it was under under my care. So we had a full functioning hostel. But surgery would have saved her. So I know the the topic of abortion can be divisive, but nobody on mm-hmm. earth surely could argue that Adab had any other choice apart from an abortion and the sad things you can never ban abortion it's important in this road, and you just ban safe abortion you can right? only ban safe abortion absolutely so after that i was completely determined we had to open a safe female health center and where women could have access to contraception to stop them being pregnant if they didn't want to in the first place access to emergency contraception and access to a safe birth so from scratch had to hire builders get all the bamboo in and we built a whole maternity unit Again, the politics were really complicated of why that hadn't happened before. But basically, I felt that without full access, the women were still very vulnerable. And then at that time in Bangladesh, midwives weren't recognised as a profession in their own right. They are now. So I hired some amazing Bangladeshi nurses that we then trained up to be midwives. And that birth unit still runs today. So that was 2011.
0: I just can't quite... Believe that now you're a NHS midwife in a Dorset hospital. So, <laughs> I'm yes. just like, wait. So, and also that you were a long time in the third world and in the international aid world. And I know that can be a really difficult place to leave mm-hmm. because it has its own rules. And it is this unbelievable microcosm of dealing with intense joy and then intense suffering and the adrenaline rush that you've been feeling all the time, that just must have been a huge thing to then step away from when you came home. And I mean, you said you only yeah. had sort of a week at a time back home. Yeah, so it's not, rec- not recommended. Yeah. That was, that was personal. No, but I think this is quite common. It, it's a big thing to then leave. So mm. what led to you leaving that world and how did you get to your first pregnancy?
1: Yeah. So after South Sudan, because of the adrenaline, cortisol, stress hormones, I didn't have a period for a year and a half. I had no libido, wasn't in a relationship, and I didn't really recognize this as being trauma-related. I just thought, oh, maybe that's how life is now. It was later seeing a gynecologist that they felt my cortisol levels were still really high. I then had, on my Bangladesh mission, a relationship with a guy who I was completely besotted by, this beautiful French man, and and (laughs) I still feel sad now. Very sadly, he broke my heart. He left the project at his end of mission and basically was never in touch again. But I just had that first inkling. I think it is maternal instinct. I'd had this imagination of what our kids would look like, and I think in my twenties I'd really hated that sense of people talking about like a ticking clock or a maternal instinct. I was like, oh god, how now? Nah? I'm a feminist. You know, I'm never gonna feel like that. But actually, I was in love in my early thirties, and absolutely, I just had this vision of what our life would be like together. And then. After the Bangladesh mission, my third one, I did have some form of a breakdown. I think partly I had a broken heart, but also my mental health was extremely bad. It's called a flashback, but I perceived it as a hallucination. And I'd had a birth that had gone very well. There was no drama. There was nothing. Care was completely safe. But I could see that the baby was alive and well in front of me. I was doing the routine, baby checks. But every sense of me, just for a moment, maybe, I don't know, let's say two seconds, three seconds, I felt I was back in the camp. Like I could smell the wood mm. smoke from people's homes, I could smell the latrines, and my eyes could see this was an okay baby, but all my other senses—my smell, my taste, my hearing—I thought it was a dead baby, and it was only lasted for a second. But straddling these two worlds was really scary. I left that shift and went homesick, and. The other midwife had taken over the care of the mum and baby, so they weren't put in any risk whatsoever. I then was signed off for a month, inverted commas again, but signed off with stress from my GP. Basically, my GP at the time had said, oh, you look far too well to have PTSD, which it was, you know, a form of PTSD. Well, sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Oh, wait. <laughs> okay. That's so that, actually what she...
1: Uh... Yeah, so I was signed off with stress. I've always looked like quite a well person, even when I'm not well. I'm very good at burying this mental ill health and and... I'm still able to work. I'm still able to remember somebody's birthday. I still turn up at work on time. But manifesting it in really unhealthy ways, like the partying and the series of one-night stands, again, looking for that happiness, looking for love, but in really not love. And there's nothing more lonely than a one-night stand because it almost feels like love. And then you wake up with the hangover and with I find one-night stands just really desolate. And after this flashback, after this hallucination, again, I just like a switch was flicked. I don't want this to be my life. I don't want to be this unwell person. And so I took time off work with stress and moved into a Buddhist center, which was brilliant because there was no alcohol, there was no partying. And it was my first real introduction to mindfulness and meditation, which when you're on the outside looking in, mindfulness can look a bit like, ew, that's so like tacky. I don't know. (laughs) But actually, it's just that sense of everybody is complicated. But let's have this really healthy, structural way to try and still be kind and try and still be mindful and try and still be open and try and still be thankful and practice gratitude, which was absolutely brilliant. I got back in touch with MSF to say my mental health is really bad and they paid for me to have really excellent trauma-based CBT, so Cognitive Behavioural
0: Therapy. And at this point, had you decided I'm not going to go back to... MSF work, what was it that made you leave?
1: Yeah, I I think it, it was two sides. It was that maternal instinct that had been sparked. Some people can do aid work and have a home life and have a functioning, fun, brilliant relationship. Absolutely. I knew I didn't have the capacity. For me, it was either a life of aid work, which was brilliant and it was fulfilling and it was scary and it was adrenaline and it was the highs and the lows and the chaos, but actually having a relationship that is healthy and it's balanced and a home life in where a child can be born into that is nurturing and supportive. I didn't feel I had the capacity to hold both simultaneously. So I, as soon as I had left my Bangladesh mission with MSF, I knew I was retiring from international humanitarian aid
0: work. So had you met your person that you were going to have children with at this point. (laughs) So over the time of the (laughs) prediction. Because the pressure's all very well, but you need a partner.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Or you need the sperm, you know, on a practical sense, wherever that sperm comes. Yeah. So I I'd lived in the Buddhist center and then felt a lot better. And then I'd bought my canal boat and it was a specialist midwife at this point for women living with HIV. So I had a baseline contract and then I could do extra hours. You know, I then wasn't with a partner and I still felt this drawn to like aid work in some description and went to teach in 2015 on the first ever midwifery course in Bangladesh, which was brilliant. But because I no longer worked for MSF, I was then free to travel and free to make friends. And I um, (laughs) am... took up surfing lessons and my surfing instructor was very handsome and was lovely company. Basically a relationship developed. We got pregnant and I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled to be pregnant, even though I'd only known him ten weeks. Which I know from the outside looking is like, ah but actually I was so happy and he was a wonderful person. So I just thought I've got my happy ever after. Finally, it's my chance. Very sadly we miscarried on our wedding day, which is unfortunate. Oh, I'm so sorry. Funny. I'd worked with miscarriage as an A&E nurse. I'd worked with miscarriage as a midwife. And I'd seen the suffering, but I hadn't really understood, if I'm honest, until I'd experienced it myself. It was really scary. I didn't know if the bleeding would stop. I didn't know if I had retained products and things. And I think for me, it was those two lines on a pregnancy test had put my life on a completely new trajectory. And then to lose that. You make plans and you think about a a date. and it was a grief. Yeah. I did still get married. Even though we hadn't known each other all that long, I was still desperate for my happy ever after. My experience of miscarriage was that of a deep sense of grief and loss and fear, not knowing if I could ever get pregnant again. I didn't know. I'd never been pregnant before. And then the outcome of that was I had one period and then I got pregnant again. And then with that pregnancy, I had a 12-week scan, which was normal. And we moved back to England. I decided it was safe. I was going to say, yeah. so were
0: you in Bangladesh
1: or Yeah, so I was in yeah. Bangladesh at the start and then we moved back to the UK um, as a married okay. couple. Um, I was working back in the NHS, but it was also quite hard to be surrounded by other people with threatened miscarriage, with threatened baby loss as a pregnant midwife. It was quite difficult for me to then balance my own need and my own pregnancy needs. So Mm. I I was practicing my mindfulness, really trying to reduce my stress. But very sadly, at our 20-week scan, we found out that my unborn had a very rare brain tumor. Um, It was a one in a million.
0: What are the chances? Yeah, it's just
1: really shitty, to be honest. It's And it felt really unfair, I think. That's my honest. It felt really unfair. I felt of all the things I've looked for in war zones, in refugee camps, all the million ways I've looked for signs and problems in other people's pregnancies and tried Mm. to keep them and their babies safe, that something called a cerebral teratoma had affected me, which I'm honest, I'd never even heard of. Over the next month, we had MRIs and we spoke to different teams and spoke to neurosurgeons, but the brain tumour had grown really fast so basically unanimous from all the health professionals I went to was that she couldn't survive outside of me so at six mm-hmm. months on paper it is a choice so I had to make the decision to birth her which technically is an abortion but I'd hope people will listen to this compassionately to me because what choice did I have right you know her head had grown so that babies on the inside intrauterine they swallow and excrete the amniotic fluids constantly she wasn't able to do that because she was yeah. overproducing amniotic fluid which in turn could kill me it's extremely um, dangerous it, it could kill you me and it could get to a point where yeah. her head was too big to be able to deliver vaginally but a preterm section anyway so all the things combined but it still had to be my choice so I chose you know I'm saying that with pain in my chest but I chose to deliver it six mm-hmm. months knowing that she would die so I was oh, induced so and delivered vaginally, but then had a retained placenta. So my first ever birth in South Sudan was a retained placenta. And then I then experienced it, which is not unusual with preterm birth, and ended up having a manual removal of my placenta and then ended up in emergency theatre with, sorry, <laughs> does my voice catching. But I had That's done okay. a general aesthetic and had the rest of the placenta moved a week later. So Got, you know, child loss, baby loss. Oh my God, this was six and a half years ago, and I'm functioning and I'm well and I'm mentally well. The loss didn't break me, but it can still rip me in half. Something just triggers you, and suddenly you find you're sitting on the kitchen floor crying and you hadn't even realized it was even sat there. So, baby loss is something that I will always live with. So, apart from the pain I feel, I am enormously grateful that I had access Mm -hmm. to the NHS and we all have a responsibility to fight for the NHS. I know there are um, maternity scandals and absolutely I hear that women are suffering. I do. And I'm not saying that ignoring their pain, but we are all a lot worse off without the NHS. So I can still practice gratitude simultaneously with grief.
0: I mean, uh, having to catch my own breath for a second. I just... Just so sorry that you went through that. And I can't even imagine
1: how awful. It's really shit. And I don't have any, I'm a writer, I'm an author, and I still don't have any better words than that. It
0: is shit. It is shit. So, I mean, taking us to after that experience, how did you return? to work and recover from that and also going back with people in that field who must have known exactly what you went through, who must have supervised those Mm -hmm. sorts of incidences. What was that like?
1: So on the day I went in to deliver Fatima outside the hospital there was about 10 women who were fully pregnant who were smoking and chatting together and I found it really difficult to not feel anger towards them. I think it was that sense of injustice. I had done everything I felt Humanly possible to keep that pregnancy safe. I was looking at how much tuna I was eating in a week. I was looking at making sure I didn't have too much coffee. I, you know, all the guidance that I help other people navigate, I was also following. I did move on from that that sense of anger because actually, what is that woman's story? We know smoking in pregnancy isn't safe, and approaching that from a compassionate mindset, what is it in her life that has led up to decision making where you are doing something that you know is directly negatively affecting the unborn? So it's important to say I, I did process this and actually what is fair it wasn't fair that adab was killed from a stick there isn't such thing as fair Mm -hmm. all we can do is navigate and try and make the best choices for us and until we speak to women individually maybe that woman used to smoke 10 bongs a night and actually that cigarette is still a positive progress for her so context is absolutely essential so i did move on from there but i was then pregnant again after a month wasn't very sensible it was my third pregnancy but my need to be pregnant was almost animalistic. My arms ached for the baby I couldn't hold. After like, a
0: month, that is. Yeah, so I had, I had one so period soon. and then I was
1: pregnant yeah. again, which, again, that's not medical advice by any stretching imagination, but my innate womanly need, I was desperate to be pregnant again. And then I'd gone to Bangladesh in the recovery time after Fatima, my daughter, had died. Found out I was pregnant there but knew that we needed money, we needed to work. My husband would need a visa. So I returned to maternity leave because Fatima was born alive. She was alive with me for nearly an hour, which actually was one of the best times of my life, that hour. It doesn't look it from the outside, but actually it was wonderful because she was so peaceful and just looked so beautiful. And I was worried, I think, because of this brain tumor that somehow I'd be disgusted by her, but actually was the best baby I'd ever seen in my whole life. And that hour was something I really cherish. The legal side of it, because she was born alive, I was on maternity leave, but ended the maternity leave early because I needed to work. And then like all the pregnant women that I was working with, every time they were like caught the sight of my newborn, my third pregnancy, they'd be like, oh, is it your first? And they were sort of like, oh, the midwife's going to have to learn to be a mum." I wanted to say about Fatima, she's my daughter. I know I lost her, but she's still my daughter. I'm still a mum. But I thought these pregnant women, they don't need to be reminded of baby loss when they're pregnant that's not fair so I'd find myself saying oh yeah it's my first and then silently apologizing to fatter in my head but trying to laugh along with the new mum jokes and because often as a midwife who's never had children for women who are having children there can be I don't know what's the right word it's not patronizing but almost a bit of smirking wink well, nudge
0: nudge type you don't like, even know what you're talking yeah. about
1: but I sometimes say to people I've never had a heart attack, but I'm a specialist cardiac nurse now. Um, I was like, I've never had a heart attack. You you definitely want me with you if you're having a heart attack. So I don't have to be able to fully experience it. So I was also working in a unit. Nottingham has had a maternity scandal. It is being investigated. It was at the time that I was working there and it was an unpleasant place to work in the NHS. We were understaffed. So I think I got to about 32 weeks and I thought, this isn't okay for my unborn baby. She comes first. I knew I was having a girl I was going to find out at scan what sex she was and then I wasn't going to tell anybody and keep it secret and I took two steps out of the scan department and somebody said oh how was your scan I went she's perfect it lasted all of five (laughs) minutes keeping it to (laughs) myself but I got to 32 weeks and I thought these birthing women they absolutely need somebody that is fully invested in being here so I took maternity leave in 32 weeks and then had a really lovely like canal side life not working it was the end of the summer and it was seeing all the the swans and the geese and just really chill out, really trying to heal and focus on the positives to my, my new and born. I then had a really wonderful birth with her in Nottingham. You have to remember with maternity scandals, is that absolutely we hear those women that were suffering. But the midwives stretched themselves so thin, but the vast majority of women still had really positive birth experience. And mm-hmm. I was really privileged, mm-hmm. I was really lucky I had a, a wonderful water birth with Aisha, and I had my friends with my midwives. My husband through his own choices and decided not to be at any of the births. And Aisha was born. And I just thought, I don't want to be a midwife at the moment. I don't want to be in these stretch units. I don't want to be feeling I'm not giving other women the full care they deserve. So I then took three years out of midwifery. So we were living on the boat I was on maternity leave and it was when Aisha started to crawl I thought I don't know if boat life is going to work for me actually <laughs> when she was mobile <laughs> yeah. some people do it and they're brilliant oh but God. for me like my um risk assessment was just firing off on all cylinders yeah. <laughs> you can you can make it we safe you can water. make it safe but you have to take steps to make it safe anyway she was starting to crawl so I thought I'm going to sell the boat and I could live anywhere by that point and my friends in Nottingham were all settled with their family lives and Friends from Shropshire, where I was brought up, they were set with their family lives. So, I, so literally, I thought, ah, do you know what, I'd like to live by the sea. So that's how I moved to Weymouth in Dorset. And at the end of that maternity leave, I went back to nursing. So I did nearly a year of maternity leave and two years of nursing cardiology, which I absolutely love. And it's also family-friendly hours. So it's a cardiac cath lab for emergency heart attacks and emergency pacemakers. But it's a Monday to Friday unit where I work. So it's brilliant because Aisha's always been spent on childcare because... And my ex-husband and I divorced. There were lots of facts involved and probably worth just noting for couples that have experienced baby loss, it can be really testing on the relationship as well. There were other factors for us, but we grieved in very different ways. And there was a big cavern between us and we ended up divorcing. He is now not in the scene at all. So I completely lone parent, but I was always dependent then on childcare. So I was working in the cath lab and life was kind of good, but I just missed midwifery. I missed... For all its hardships, connecting with women and birthing people, but where you don't have the faff of British culture where we're, it's like this conversation with you now, we've really got stuck in and we're really sharing space. You know, I love that. I love that sense of connection with my community and midwifery is one way into that because you're automatically transported into an intimate time in somebody's life that, on the whole, the vast majority of the time is a healthy, positive point of their life. It's an absolute privilege to share people's pregnancy with them. And I'd really missed it, but I didn't know if I could go back. And then, really fortunately for me, where I work at Dorchester, our matron is exemplary. She is brilliant. And I just had one meeting. I said, I don't know if I can come back. I don't know about family-friendly hours. And she just said, why don't you just try? You know, why don't you just do one shift? At that point, she went to a nursery and it was a brilliant nursery, but it didn't open till 7.30. So I couldn't get to the hospital till 8. And the midwifery shift started at 7.30. And then in the evening, it closed at 6, but the midwifery shifts were finishing at 7.30. So I automatically couldn't do the long day shifts. But she said, Mm. I'm more than happy to do family-friendly hours. I've been a nurse for 20 years. I've been a midwife now for a loose track. I'm bringing a wealth of experience, but I can't do the shift. So she basically let me have a contract that was no nights, no weekends, no bank holidays, and family friendly hours within childcare. But absolutely loved it. Like the first birth I was back with, I was like, I do love this. If you take away yeah. the stress, I do love it. and this sounds a bit arrogant, but I think I'm good at it. I love the space, but I think clinically I'm sound, but also I love, love, love sharing space with people and connecting them with it. And midwifery can be amazing for that. So I then had a contract that was family friendly but was paying for childcare. And I realised that working part time, I think after tax and after my student loans and after pension contributions, I think I was taking home about 1300 a month and I was spending £900 a month on childcare. So I was, and then you're waiting, I was like, is this? Like, is, it worth, uh. is it worth me working? So I then did have some universal credit, which then was ended because I had my contract for the book, which then basically, I had an advance that was then meant I wasn't eligible for the universal credit. So I did the tax free childcare, but I was still paying about £600 a month on childcare. Were you receiving
0: any financial support from your ex partner? No, nothing at that time. Oh, excellent. Um, so I. <laughs> Just and gets we, better. Yeah, doesn't so it? <laughs> there was probably
1: there was some like complicated politics of it all. But no, at that time I wasn't. And we split up. I think it had taken me a month to tell them that we'd split up and then I did tell them but then they claimed back I think they claimed back a thousand pounds so I owed a thousand pounds and I was taking home about I don't know 400 pounds a month and my mortgage is more than that and you know and then we've got our gas electricity so I was, I was minus per month um, and I to feed Aisha so to, to feed stressful. her a proper nutritional diet I ended up feeding myself for less than a pound a day just to be able to feed her sorry <laughs> that just took me I surprised that. Because it's so much better now, like looking back, I'm like, oh God, that was horrible. Sorry, I wasn't
0: at that just, just, like, still at that point.
1: No, I think I've realized like how far I've come you? since then, especially because you can go to school, so it's free. But yeah, it was pretty a horrible way to work. And then we had COVID. So I was in Dorset, not really knowing anybody. And at the end of the relationship, I found it quite hard to make friends because when your life is full of this relationship that's ending, it's really difficult to then do the chit-chat for making a new friendship group.
0: But also a job and having Absolutely. a toddler the, you by know, yourself and, and all the sleep disturbances. And the grief, you know, and the
1: baby loss, grief and all of yeah. that. Yeah. So by this point, I was working two jobs. So I worked part-time as a cardiac nurse and part-time as a midwife. And so the relationship had ended. Then it was COVID. And it was really scary those first few months looking back in COVID because we didn't have vaccines. Ooh, we, we didn't know if it We it. didn't really know yeah. what it was. But also we were banned from PPE unless somebody was COVID symptoms. So okay. that you wouldn't run out. Well, yes. (laughs) Matt Hancock. Let's not rustle my feathers on us. We knew about asymptomatic COVID transmission, even though the government now says they didn't. We all did. We all knew from the start that there was asymptomatic transmission. I was really cross because at one point, it was a month after the first COVID lockdown in March. So by the middle of April 2020, Matt Hancock had gone on the radio and and said that we're running out of PPE because nurses are overusing them. And I just, I'm, I'm still really angry about that. I know it's years ago, and I know we should all be getting over COVID, but I'm still really cross. It's a form of gaslighting. And what I'm cross about is that I've been to war zones and I have taken risks, and that was my choice. I was working in the NHS where I still should be protected by the Health and Safety at Work Act. And I was dropping my kid off at nursery, and then I was working with people, and I was completely unprotected. And then I was going to pick her up. And I will take harm myself if I have to. I wanted to help my community, I wanted to work. It was a national crisis. I wanted to stand up and I did extra shifts and I did over my hours and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but then I picked her up and she wants to hug me and she wants me to sit next to her and read her bedtime stories. And I have to breathe next to her to read her bedtime stories. And I don't know if my breath is going to kill her. And no mum should have to make the decision, especially if they know about baby loss. Like I, I understand my baby loss very clearly, but to feel that I could harm my child by going to work I am still really angry that I was put in that position. And if they didn't have Mm. enough PPE, which we asked from the start to wear, if we didn't have enough PPE, if they'd have said we are prioritizing PPE for the symptomatic patients because they're more likely to harm the staff, Mm. I could have lived with that and I would have still worked. But to be told that we don't need it and to be told we've run out because we're overusing it, I am still really cross about that. And I think I'm allowed to be. And I'm not sure I what would have to happen. To be, yeah. I don't know what would have to happen for me to not be angry anymore.
0: I think you'd need a time machine to yeah. not be angry about that. Absolutely. There's just no possible universe in which... Nothing, like yeah. my com- I-, like, I don't first. have anything constructive yeah. to say. Like, <laughs>
1: Aisha, my daughter Aisha, she comes first. She comes first in all the choices that I make. But then they even had this brainache. Well, maybe I won't work. Maybe I will not be that person that steps up. And then we had the clap for carers on the Thursdays. I was like, you're clapping me off to my death, potentially. We heard all the stories of nurses and midwives and doctors dying from COVID. You know, I felt like, I'm not a martyr here. I go to work because I get paid. Yes, I enjoy my job. Yes, there are additional benefits. Yes, I love it. But I'm not a volunteer. I go to work because it is a paid job and I have to pay my bills. That's the bottom line. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, well, if I don't work and the hostel collapses, then who would I should go to if she got sick anyway? So it was impossible. I pendulated between working and not working. In reality, I worked every shift into extras, but in my brain, I was still it. Mm-hmm.
0: Was um, the equivalent of them? They projected the Ukrainian flag onto the home office and then... Well, also not giving anymore. people visas. Yeah, <laughs> assholes. So it's just like... Well, it, it's that oh virtual signature. Okay, it's getting signature. really political, but, exactly. Well, just steer away from politics as hmm. much as we can for a second. I find it quite difficult to steer away from politics, but there we go. I um, say we're all
1: interlinked. This is it. I think
0: that's but imagine, So I one need. more bit of politics
1: Imagine over that time if we had a government and a leader that was inspiring us to be even better than we were. Can you, just, can you d- even dare to dream that for a moment? Because that's what we deserve, right? Imagine if just how different that whole space would have played out. I but I was scared. I know. I was, and it doesn't sound very brave. I was scared every single day that I was harming my kid.
0: And oh, that's not a way yeah. to live. No, it's not a way to live. And this is the thing, even with COVID affecting how you therefore do your mothering and how you do your midwifery, having experienced the baby loss, firstly from miscarriage, secondly from a termination, and then going through this very real fear at that time your practice must have really changed pre-pregnancies versus Mm. post-pregnancy so what would you say the main things that have changed in your practice since Mm. becoming pregnant yourself
1: that's interesting because with the overseas work as well it could be very easy to see risk everywhere and see all pregnancy as risk. But also we're doing people a disservice if we don't recognise that there is risks to pregnancy, right? But it's there is a risk and we manage that risk and we focus on the positive. And to me, a positive birth experience isn't necessarily about what it can be, about meditating your baby out in a forest surrounded by, you know, heart players. That would be absolutely lovely if that's the choice. But positive birth experience can also be a fully medicalized induction of labor with an epidural and a cesarean section. But I think to me, positive birth experience is about, do you feel informed? Was it safe? Did you feel you had a choice? Were you listened to? Were you respected? Was there dignity? So in some ways, from my own experience and from the overseas stuff, it shouldn't actually matter what my experience is or where I'm working because I should approach my role as a midwife as maintaining dignity, maintaining informed choice and, and all the other things to make a positive birth experience, regardless of what choices that woman is making even if that woman is choosing to smoke. And that's the important point that we're making, isn't it? It's her choice to make... We obviously prefer it if women don't smoke because we know it has a negative effect on the baby. I guess all of us are informed, aren't we, by all our personal experiences. We all are. Every single decision we make is an outcome of the millions and billions of experiences we've had before. I think one thing with baby loss that really helped me was just... It helped me piece together about my role... In aid work of sometimes you have to bear witness to suffering and then speak out about it because I could never be okay with that before for the women that I felt I let down in South Sudan bearing witness seemed dreadful because I'm witnessing their suffering I'm witnessing what we can't do and what good does that do to anybody but actually when I have my own baby loss my midwife Helen Lowenstein that's sadly no longer with us she sorry. was with me every step of the way and she witnessed my grief. And it meant that I wasn't alone in there. It meant that I wasn't in this scary space without a light in this dark world. She was definitely like my light in the dark tunnel. So actually, I really understood that bearing witness to somebody's experience, even if you can't make it better, is really valid. I specialize now as a teenage specialist midwife in the NHS. So I caseload somewhere between 16 and 20 families where obviously the woman is a teenager. And I really hope that sort of the buzz term for it would be trauma-informed care. So I want to hear people. If somebody says they have a small concern or a silly worry or a big concern or a big worry, I'd hope that I could be a safe space where they can voice that. And then I can use my clinical knowledge to be able to guide and navigate through what what needs to come next from it. And so I hope it's made me a better midwife. But I don't know, you probably have to ask the women that I work with. I can't always take away people's pain and their suffering. I've had women that have had stillbirths and baby loss within my cohort. Unfortunately, I'm not this magical person that can heal the world that I once hoped I could have been. But I do hope that I help maintain women's safety and respect and dignity throughout whatever their their birthing experience is.
0: It's really interesting that you keep using that word, dignity, because it just really resonated with me. I've never heard people discuss that term dignity in the context of birth, which sounds totally ridiculous because of course, dignity is a huge part of birth. And
1: And a lot of people laugh after saying, well, all my dignity went out the window. I was like, oh, it shouldn't.
0: Yeah, but it shouldn't. And you're so right because you're talking about positive birth experience and what does that mean? And I had two cesareans, one unplanned and another very much planned. And my first one was yeah birth itself was fine after birth not good but mm. the second one was absolutely amazing it was amazing i couldn't have Brilliant. dreamed a yeah. more perfect birth and I, I had so much dignity and
1: how we use Trace. our medical yeah. language is so important because you know even things oh, like yeah. the vaginal exams they are optional like monitoring mm. it is optional like blood tests scans they are optional we'd hope that yeah. on balance you would benefit from xyz because of this and this but it is your choice. So I'm hoping it'd be great if you did choose it because then you agree that you're going to benefit from it. But actually everything is a choice in there and informed choice is really interesting. Language and coercive language. One of the reasons I love caseloading with a small caseload of women is I can spend more time with them. And some people want to see me very briefly. Some people want to spend a lot of time to ask loads of questions. Some people don't. And until you're with somebody, you have that professional friendship or professional connection. With somebody, mm. um, then you d- you don't know what those needs are, and sometimes the needs aren't always obvious as well. Oh my god, I could literally talk
0: to you, whatever. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like I'm in love. Everything. Has everybody, like, settle magical, down. Baby. Go and open a bottle everything. of wine. <laughs> 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 oh no, oh my god! I'm going to ask him to, to Dorset. It's so far away. <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> right. I'm very conscious of time now, so I'm going to try and just pick two more questions to ask you. But obviously, you've managed to release this. Book. I'm so excited to read it. I have bought it. Thank it should be in you. your bank account shortly. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been quite an experience to write. When you are single mumming and mm. midwifing and mm-hmm. hiding and COVIDing. COVID-ing, COVID-ing. Yes. Yeah, so it must have incredible to finally have it out.
1: It is. Yeah. So I started writing, honestly, about 12 years ago. So when I was in the field by head torch in my woman tent, um, trying to process what we'd seen that day. And then over time, I realized it had become like this testimonial for the women that didn't make it. They told me their stories. And all the stories in the book are completely true, but they are anonymized to protect their identity just because with the wars, And I couldn't get consent from them to be included. And some women couldn't make it. But also later when I went to therapy, I was having quite invasive dreams and having night sweats. And it was always a complicated birth. It was always that I couldn't save them. And it was running through corridors like for hours. And like just, it it was horrid. And the therapist I was with had suggested that writing down the dreams can in some ways disempower them. And actually when I wrote them down, it was like, what am I going to do with all this writing? Like I'd be in a cafe scribbling notes down on a napkin and things. And it was the biggest catharsis to write it down. Because I definitely had symptoms of PTSD, but I also felt I had moral injury, which is a similar mental health problem alongside PTSD, but it's a slight difference in that it's a fracturing of your sense of self because you yourself has overstepped your moral boundaries. Moral injury. So basically I went to South Sudan that. to save lives. But not only could I not sometimes, but I also had to stay around and see the outcome of me not being able to save lives. And it's like you can have a fractured sense of personality. And it's often associated with profound sense of guilt. And through writing the book and doing research around moral injury that I'd never heard of before, to be honest, it really Mm -hmm. started me on the path because the healing from moral injury is being able to forgive yourself. So, writing the book and understanding from a perspective of telling the whole story, I finally did get the chance. And the writing of the book has been really healing. Then I thought, well, is this book, has it just been my own journey? And then we go back to the core philosophy of MSF, the témoignage, the bear witness and mm-hmm. speak out on behalf. And I thought, because I sat with it a lot because it's it should be the women telling their own story. Absolutely, I'm very privileged that I've been able to have a computer and I'm educated. So I'm a white woman. I shouldn't be the one telling other women who are predominantly black and Asian women's birth stories. I recognize that. But I sat with it once the book was nearly written. I did sit with it for probably another two years. But then nobody speaks out about them at all, especially for the women that died. So I did feel on balance, it was the right thing to print it by absolutely recognise the complexities of the white saviour complex, etc. And the book as well, I do highlight my failings. Yes, I highlight where we had these miraculous births like the triplets, but I also do recognise where I didn't know enough or I didn't do enough for women and it's been really healing. The last few chapters were written in lockdown, but the thing was because I was single at the time, and Everywhere was locked down. My little one would be in bed and I would sleep by eight. So rather than drink wine and watch TV in the evenings, which I felt was my other choice, I'd write. So I'd sit cross-legged on my bed with my laptop and write and write and suddenly I'd look up and it. I accidentally pulled an all-nighter. I was still writing at four in the morning. And then Mm. she'd then wake up at 5.30. I was like, oh, that wasn't the most (laughs) sensible idea. (laughs) Yeah, and then it's been published by Bloomsbury, which is obviously a really big publishing house. I'm I'm really grateful. I've got a brilliant agency. So, yeah, things just kind of – I'm really fortunate.
0: Well, I'm pretty sure every single person who is listening is now buying a book. And it shows that, yeah, it's a testament to the book, but anybody who's a mum or who is pregnant—is there one thing that you would want them to walk away with from having read mm. your book?
1: I guess probably the sense of connection and community that spans beyond our physical realm. But what I'd hope was that through the story of me in the book and the people I'm caring about, it would create a sense of community and connect birthing women, birthing people. Together regardless of these boundaries beyond what we can necessarily imagine. Because at the end of it, a woman in South Sudan, yes there's war, yes, there's tropical diseases, etc., but she wants the same as what we want, right? She wants safety, she wants security, she wants a home where her child's gonna be nourished and nurtured and reach its potential. She wants love, she wants happiness. And that that does connect all of us, doesn't it? And it doesn't and shouldn't matter about anything else, actually. We are all like these fallible, wonderful, frail, dreadful, fantastic people, and we're all just doing our best. So, I hope maybe, yeah, that would be, if that
0: could work, that would be, that would be great. Birth transcendence. Yes. <laughs> oh my god! Well, if I could give you a round of applause, I would really? by myself. It won't really mean anything, but best conversation. It was just <laughs> so wonderful to talk to you I'm honestly so grateful for your time we've massively overrun so for everyone who's listening sorry this is a longer episode than usual but I I did say I did warn
1: you I was a talker this is the thing
0: (laughs) and that that also helps me
1: appreciate why I found it so hard to to talk about this stuff before because it kind of the context needs the space it it took a book to describe this it took an hour and a half to get through this yeah
0: It, and there's so much more I want to ask, but I just I can't. I just Next have one's to the
1: glass and in the pub deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, deal. Thank you so much. I'm like grinning from ear to ear. Thank you. Oh, enjoy so the rest I've of your really day. It. Take care.
1: Yeah, you too. Thank you so much.
0: Well, you made it to the end. Enjoyed it? Let me know on Instagram or Twitter, or better yet, drop me a rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day and if you are a parent, have an even better night. Bye everybody!